Today's IPCC report is an atlas of human suffering and a damning indictment of failed climate leadership. With fact upon fact, this report reveals how people on the planet are getting clobbered by climate change. Nearly half of humanity is living in the danger zone now. Many ecosystems are at the point of no return now. Unchecked carbon pollution is forcing the world's most vulnerable on a frog march to destruction now. The facts are undeniable. This abdication of leadership is criminal. That was UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres. In the background of all the news of the last few weeks, there's been another big story, climate change. Last week, the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change put out its latest report. There's a lot of grim news surrounding climate change, but one thing the report also makes clear, it's still not too late to turn things around. After the break, we'll get into the report and what it all means. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. A reminder to have your questions answered on future topics, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful, and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to betterhelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. We're discussing the latest IPCC report. Joining us from Vienna, Austria, is Lisa Schipper. She's an environmental social science research fellow with the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford. And she's also a co-author of the latest IPCC report. Lisa, welcome to the program. Thank you for inviting me. With us from Seattle is another report co-author, Christy Ebai. She's a professor at the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington. Chris, welcome to 1A. Thank you for having me. And joining us from D.C. is Zara Hirji. She's a senior science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Zara, it's great to have you with us. It's great to be here. Now, Lisa, this report is thousands of pages representing years of work, and we'll dig into specifics a bit later. But briefly, what were a few of your big takeaways? I would say the biggest, most important takeaway is that we now have so much evidence that climate change is here and that it's a threat and the impacts are really imminent that we have to act. 
Uh, and as you said, that we actually still have this window of opportunity, even though it's closing quickly, but we still have this window of opportunity. And that's really the most important message. Chris, the Earth has already warmed to 1.1 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial times. It's almost two degrees Fahrenheit. And we're already seeing some of the effects of global warming, as uh, Zara alluded to, sooner than previously predicted. How is climate change affecting our lives today? Climate change is affecting our lives in multiple dimensions. Climate change is a stress multiplier. It's not just the changes in mean temperatures that are resulting in, for example, increases in the geographic range of a variety of infectious diseases. It's also increasing the magnitude and the frequency of extreme weather and climate events. You've been reporting over the last several years of increasing heat waves, floods, droughts, and all the impacts on our lives. And those intersect with underlying vulnerabilities. We know in the United States the problem with redlining and what that means for the communities if this intersects with climate change by increasing the temperatures in those areas because there's fewer trees as one of many examples. Lisa, when you think about some of the specific threats to human health, what's top of mind for you? I think... Probably there's one thing that's really interesting in this report is that the the impacts on mental health, which is something that's uh, new for the first time in this report, and really how we're actually how it's affecting us not just in a physical way but actually in this mental way, uh, the stress. Uh, so for me, that that I think is one of the the most frightening things because of course we we see a lot about sort of climate anxiety, and I notice it, and I'm I'm sure others do in when I'm teaching how you know I have to be quite cautious about talking about climate change with students because there are certain things that you just you know we want to make sure that there's some hope left so that, to know that this is actually something that's being studied and that we can see as a sort of a big effect I think that that's a really important uh, that's a really important finding well our lives are already being affected now at 1.1 degrees and one of you wants to know how bad it could get hello my name is Rennie I'm from Sandusky Ohio and one thing I believe for a while, but I'm not sure that it's true, and I, I'd like someone to give me a definitive answer, is um, how bad can it get? They always talk about the end of this century, but what about the end of the next century? I believe it could get so hot that life on Earth would become extinct. People hint about it with, say, existential crisis, but I'd really like to know um, how bad can it get if we don't... Uh, do something about it now. Lisa, what would you say to Renny? I mean, I think one of the important things to keep in mind is that we do have, you know, an international agreement to try to control the greenhouse gas emissions. And we do have a huge amount of national plans in place to, to take action. Governments like in the U.S. have made commitments to try to keep the global warming to below 1.5 degrees. So I think, you know, hopefully that we won't get to that point. But I think what's important to keep in mind is that if if we were to sort of take the worst case scenario that, that there is no action, it's probably not that we're going to reach the point where it's so hot that life becomes extinct because there will be a lot of other kinds of things that will happen before that. There will be ecosystems that will start collapsing and that will have reverberations for, for instance, food security and water security for us. So it's, I think, you know, in between that it gets too hot, we're actually going to see a lot of other kind of social crises that that will probably be, be more, have a bigger impact uh, at some point on, on our 
um, survival. But I mean, I can't, I, I would really hope that we never get to that point. Well, and, and, and Christy, I wonder when we think about that worst case scenario, who would be impacted most severely and most quickly? It's a good question, and it depends on a whole series of assumptions. There are lots of discussions of when does life become unlivable, and yet humans have inhabited all kinds of places on Earth that are pretty uninhabitable. We know that we have the power to alter our environments. But as the temperatures continue to rise, if we don't abate our greenhouse gas emissions, then we're going to see very severe impacts on outdoor workers in particular. There's growing evidence that with higher temperatures, pregnant women more often have stillbirths, low birth weight babies. Older adults are particularly susceptible to higher temperatures. We'll see quite a wide range of people being affected by higher temperatures and by more heat waves. Zara, the report warned that there is a brief and rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all. That's a a quote from the report. How long is that rapidly closing window? Uh, it's It's a great question. I think it really depends on what we think that window is. And as the other speakers have mentioned, there's there's a range. But the next decade, this decade that we're in, is crucial. I think that's often what people are referring to because it really won't be that long until we potentially hit 1.5 degrees Celsius, something I mentioned in one of my stories. It could happen as soon as next decade. And there are a lot more impacts that come with that. And so it's really the steps that we take today and the next couple of years that matter so much. Lisa, what do you hope policymakers take away from this report? I know it has a lot of bleak things in it. And unfortunately, that's that's what we found. But I think what I'd really like them to take away is all of these opportunities for action that, that we outline. And I think the fact is that we talk about how there are limits to how we can adapt to climate change. And uh, we mentioned both in in human systems and in in natural systems, but the fact that we already know that these limits are there and we know what the risks are that are associated with potentially making things worse means that we can already now start adjusting our our policies and our programs. And I'm hoping that that is what they'll take away uh, so that they can kind of feel like they're armed with, with sort of new strategies for how to approach adaptation to climate change. And Chris, for you, what what are the key takeaways for policymakers here? The other point I'd like to add to Lisa's excellent comments is there are significant benefits to our health and well-being and to our ecosystems from mitigation. On the human health side, the more we reduce emissions, from example, coal-fired power plants, the more we reduce what comes out of our tailpipes, from transportation, and the more we change our diets to sustainable diets. There's many studies counting how many avoided hospitalizations and how many avoided premature deaths would be the result. And when you value those, the value of those avoided hospitalizations, avoided premature deaths, are of the same order of magnitude or larger than the cost of mitigation. Now, the UN report focused on ways communities are adapting to their changing climates, and we asked you about what's going on where you live. Here's what Ian told us. I live in Lakewood, Ohio, and the city government here has taken some good steps toward adjusting for climate change. 
including shifting the city government over to all renewable power. They've also committed to purchasing uh, electric and hybrid vehicles for the city fleet and police. And also the Cuyahoga County Planning Commission has a great plan to deal with lake erosion, uh, which has been exacerbated over the past several years due to climate change-related changes in lake height. And they have a lakefront access plan, which will shore up many miles of the Lake Erie shore and provide a walking path as well. We also heard from David, who emailed, I am pessimistic pessimistic that we will be able to avoid the worst effects of climate change. I live in Florida, where we face rising sea levels, tropical storms, and drought-triggered wildfires. The Republican leadership response? Dig their heads further into the sand and pretend it isn't and won't happen. We've been warned by climate scientists for three decades with little real action taken. Lisa, what are some of the more successful adaptation measures this report highlights? Um, Among the most successful are really those that relate to water management. So um, we have, for instance, early warning uh, seems to be something that works very well. Uh, Early warning in case there's a flood or a storm coming. But I think it's important to remember that these are all very much dependent on circumstances and also global warming levels. And they may be successful now, but they may not be successful as the temperatures rise. Now, Lisa, this report also talks about maladaptation efforts. Explain exactly what that means. Yes, maladaptation is essentially the idea that um, something, an unwanted or an unexpected outcome of an adaptation strategy that's originally implemented with good intentions. So the mal means bad. So it's not just that an adaptation strategy isn't sufficient or doesn't really have an impact, but it actually makes people worse off than they were before the strategy was implemented. And can you share an example of that? Yeah, unfortunately, there are lots of examples around the world. The most sort of striking types of examples seem to be around coastal structures to protect settlements, low-lying coastal settlements. And so sea sea walls that protect from storm surges or things like coastal erosion or even sea level rise, that by the way that they're engineered sometimes have an effect that they actually shift the problem down the coast. So for instance, the coastal erosion that was happening in one location gets shifted down to the next settlement instead that doesn't have a a wall to protect it. Um, So that was an example from the South Pacific. And another example also from the South Pacific where you have a a, a seawall that was built to protect the settlement, but they didn't take into account the fact that rainwater had to drain as well. So it created this new hazard because it now created flooding in the location instead. Uh, and, and, And we gave these kinds of examples all across, both also in the U.S., of course, Um, But then there are also different kinds of examples that have more to do with sort of behavioral strategies or um, institutions that don't really, uh, yeah, they don't really do what they're supposed to do. Well, and I wonder, Zara, we got this tweet from Too Many Books who says, when will the U.S. government put dealing with climate change ahead of the stock market or the military? Seems like a lot of bipartisan indifference. How has the federal government tried to curb the effects of climate change here in the U.S.? And are those efforts working? It really depends on who's in charge. You know, right now under President Joe Biden, he from the get-go said that addressing the climate crisis is among his top priorities. And he's, his administration has taken a lot of steps when it comes to trying to put in place 
regulations that would curb carbon pollution across various industries. But there's only so much that the federal government can do right now. And you just mentioned um, some of that indifference in Congress. President Biden has proposed this Build Back Better Act, which I'm sure some of your listeners have heard before. Um, that act, of course, has stalled. It has not been turned into law. That would, if it did, would carve out billions of dollars to go towards the type of adaptation and mitigation strategies, the climate solutions that we're talking about. And it would really help kind of not just it would bolster the communities, some of the low-income communities, the most disadvantaged communities, providing them with the resources to really help shore up their defenses. But it is absolutely a hot and um, controversial topic within the U.S., and it it's yet to be seen. And you mentioned at the top of your show, you know, other things can get in the way of addressing climate change and just the fact that this major report came out last week and then was overshadowed by this really urgent and pressing situation in Ukraine is an example of that. Chris, what does the report say about adapting to the effects of climate change versus mitigating the causes of it? They're equally important. That the more we adapt, the better we're going to be prepared as the climates continue to rise. The more we mitigate we will ensure that our future will not have some of the extremes we talked about. So we have to go along both tracks. We can't focus on one versus the other because it will, as we've talked about, if we don't adapt, it's going to leave communities so ill-prepared to deal with a warmer future. And if we don't mitigate, our future is going to be much more dire. I want to circle back to the voicemail we got from Rennie, who wanted to know how bad it would get. And, and a couple of people are saying, well, we still don't understand how bad it will get. Now, Lisa, what I heard you saying was it could get very, very bad, but human beings will be forced to adapt to what's to what's changing in our environment as the climate include as the temperatures in, in, increase over time. But John tweeted this to answer the gentleman from Sandusky's question. The answer is yes, it will get bad enough to wipe out most life on Earth. But as far as humans are concerned, other issues will emerge first. It certainly will get bad enough to force major human social change. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, I think that's essentially the the point is that I think we're probably going to see a lot of additional problems emerging. I mean, you know, in terms of the kinds of things, we don't know everything about what climate change, you know, the consequences will be. And I think that's that's one of the, the reasons why we need to act now is because although we know a lot more now about the climate system, about how to adapt, we know what the sources of greenhouse gas emissions are and how to reduce them, but we still don't have a complete you know, we we don't have a crystal ball. So we can't tell exactly how humans will behave in the future. And humans are very difficult to predict. So certainly uh, we can imagine that there could be, you know, different kinds of conflicts emerging um, over scarcity and resources, I think. Uh, And that might be, you know, that could potentially be what's worse in the end than the climate change. But the climate change is what's triggering these kinds of things. And briefly, without mitigation, let's say we just continued moving forward, would the earth eventually become unlivable? 
Yeah, yes. I mean, I think the point is that Chris has made is that we can't actually just adapt. And the report shows very clearly that there are these what we call hard limits to adaptation. These are limits where we cannot, there's not, no matter what we do, we're not going to be able to change them. They're particularly prominent in natural systems, uh, you know, ecosystems that simply won't be able to adapt past a certain level of warming. But it's also the case in human systems. And the example that's probably the most easy to understand is the lack of sort of the limit to fresh water available on small islands. At, at some point, there will be no water available to drink, and we all need water to survive. So that those are really hard limits. Lisa, how will adaptation efforts have to change as the atmosphere warms more and more? Well, I think one of the things that the report shows clearly is that we have, we're not really doing a very good job at adapting. So we have a lot of learning that still needs to happen, but those lessons, we, we know what they are. We just need to adjust them. Uh, one thing is really thinking about sort of, uh, you know, where are people going to be living over the sort of in the near future? And we know that there are lots of people moving to urban areas all over the world, and particularly in developing countries, uh, there's a huge trend. So really thinking about, you know, maybe prioritizing urban areas because that's where there'll be sort of the biggest opportunities also for actually being able to combine the mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions with adaptation and then thinking about sustainable development at the same time. Uh, so that's some of the sort of course that doesn't mean that we should exclude rural areas, but because we have to sort of prioritize the funding, thinking about urban areas is one of the, kind of the windows of opportunity for really having uh, big impacts. Zara, the report specifically calls out climate misinformation in North America. What does it say? Yeah, this was another area that was totally new in this report. And it was calling out the fact that there is this history of misinformation and about there being a problem about the science. And that has resulted in exactly what that listener was just saying in delay of action. And it is really significant. And we're certainly seeing misinformation um, and critiques about, you know, how bad is the problem? uh, What are really the right solutions, you know, playing out right now. Is it clear where that misinformation is coming from? In many cases, yes. Uh, We're hearing a lot of members, Republican members of Congress, kind of saying incorrect things. And there is just a history that kind of traces back to the fossil fuel industry, to oil and gas companies, the very companies that, of course, stand to lose so much of their business in a world that shifts away from using their products. We're discussing climate change in the latest IPCC report. We'll be back with more from you and our guests after the break. And remember to join future conversations, download our 1-8-VOX-POP app and leave us a voicemail. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com slash 1A. Over this last year and a half, the world's been through a lot. So on this season of the StoryCorps podcast, we'll hear stories reminding us that even when times are hard, we can still begin again. Listen to our new season wherever you get your podcasts. 
Let's get back to our conversation on the latest U.N. climate report. Lisa, the IPCC has been putting out these reports for decades now. How do you think about the action or lack thereof of world government so far? Yeah, this is the sixth cycle of these reports, and the first one came in 1990. So it's true. They're, they've been c- coming out for a long time. But this is also sort of the scientific part of the climate change dialogue. So the big sort of policy action space is in the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. And the IPCC is essentially tasked as a sort of scientific body to, to provide input into that political uh, space. So the fact that the reports are not sort of leading to immediate government action is, of course, frustrating in the sense that we, you know, like I said, we have a lot of evidence and we know very much what needs to be done, uh, both on adaptation and on reducing greenhouse gas emissions and the kind of development that we need to look look at and think about in order to become climate resilient in the future. Uh, but I think that the, you know, where this kind of action happens on a global level is at that UN framework convention discussions. And and there are annual meetings, these so-called COPs. There will be the COP 27 this year at the end of the year. But what do you put at the heart of what, for Kevin, feels like a disconnect between what we've been told is the urgency of this issue and the actual action to mitigate and adapt? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the challenges is, of course, that the the impacts of climate change are felt very unevenly across the planet. And places, many places in the U.S., for example, people won't necessarily see the impacts of climate change very immediately, although they will probably be indirectly in the price of different kinds of crops or, or you know, vegetables or, 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 or fruit, for example. But it's really, um, it's sort of, I think for many people living in, the U.S. And, and in Europe also, it's there is an image of, of the people sort of off in, you know, the, the developing world where these images of, you know, floods and so on are, are happening. And, and I think that creates a disconnect that, you know, who's actually, who are the victims? Uh, but the reality is, of course, that the, the, the unequal, the unevenness is because the, the richest countries have produced all the greenhouse gas emissions. And the biggest impacts are being felt in the countries that have produced almost no greenhouse gas emissions. So I think, you know, there's been probably a, a political effort to create that disconnect so that there isn't, you know, doesn't feel like the responsibility lies in, in the developed countries. Uh, so I think there is unfortunately something intentional there. Uh, but the reality is, of course, that there are impacts being felt everywhere, and and hopefully that will also be clear coming through in the policies soon. Sarah, one of your recent pieces for BuzzFeed was was really fascinating. You mapped out a, a climate change timeline of sorts through the eyes of your daughter, who's a toddler. And what are the positive ways this could play out for her? I think this was mentioned earlier, where a lot of the actions that we can take to both better adapt to a warming world as well as mitigate or stave off a much hotter world have a lot of co-benefits. So if we're trying to cut down on our fossil fuel production um, because of the greenhouse gases that they generate, there's a lot of other air pollution that is generated, say, by coal-fired power plants. And we could cut that pollution and see the health benefits um, for certain communities, say, living in cities. Another big, I think, adaptation that was mentioned is 
or strategy is increasing our relationship or changing our relationship with nature and kind of being a society that thinks of nature not as something so separate, but something that is more integral. And I like to think about what kind of world does that mean for my daughter? Um, could she be living in a world where we have that different relationship, maybe a relationship that's a little bit more in tune? Chris, how is climate change already affecting the health of the youngest members of our society? About 85% of the health risks of a changing climate are in children. And these are children around the world. The biggest impacts are coming from changes in productivity of our crops and in the nutritional quality of our crops, which results in undernutrition in far too many children. Spread of the range of a variety of infectious diseases, dengue fever, an issue in the Americas, is spreading its geographic range with warmer temperatures. Lyme disease is spreading its geographic range in Canada. We spoke a little bit about air pollution. There are also all of the impacts we talked about from extreme weather and climate events. And all of those affect the health of children first, but also affect women and other vulnerable groups. Zara, the last installment in this series of reports is expected in April. What's the focus of the next report? This report that we just saw was focused on adaptation. We've talked about that a lot. How can we respond to the warming that's already here? The next one is focused more on mitigation. What can we do to prevent further warming? So that's where we are going to really see uh, some intense and interesting discussions around say, the use of fossil fuels versus renewables. What are the different changes we can make to our world that could lead us to dramatically cutting down on our climate pollution? And Sarah, as you've been digging into this report and and doing your own reporting, what are you hopeful about right now? I think there has been a really big shift just in my lifetime about the awareness of the issue and also about what people are doing. I know so many of the listeners said they're not seeing any any change in their own communities, but the report does talk about how there has been a tremendous amount of examples and um, ways in which communities around the world are thinking about this, are trying really hard to, to address it. And this report does provide you know, some guidelines on rather than going down the road of maladaptation, how could we be better about this so that we can really lessen the blow of future impacts? So I, I am hopeful of the action that we're, we're seeing and um, the trend towards greater action. Chris, what will you be looking for in the next report? We're going to see more in that report about the benefits of mitigation, not just for the planet, but for health, for ecosystems, for livelihoods, for our lives. That there are reasons we need to mitigate to reduce climate change. And at the same time, we can use our mitigation activities to increase resilience, increase sustainability, reduce our inequities, and make our societies closer to what we would all like to see in them so that we have better lives in the future. Lisa, what about for you? What will you be looking for in that next report? Well, I think one of the key concepts that is going to be in that report is uh, 
known as Just Transitions, which talks about really how as we go to address greenhouse gas emissions and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we also think about what the implications are for the people who have jobs in the industries, like coal industry or other kinds of things, so that we can ensure that we actually allow for a transition so we just don't kind of drop those people and we consider what opportunities are there for their employment in the future as well. And I think that's a really kind of a core concept of climate justice. Uh, and it's something that I think that broader concept is also echoed in our report is the notion that, as you mentioned at the beginning, this idea of a livable future for all, that it's not just for some, but it's actually for everybody. That was Lisa Shepper. She's an environmental social science research fellow with the Environmental Change Institute at the University of Oxford. She's also a co-author of the latest IPCC report. Also with us, Professor Christy Ebai. She's a co-author on the report, and she's a professor at the Center for Health and the Global Environment at the University of Washington. And Zara Hirji, a senior science reporter for BuzzFeed News. Lisa, Chris, Zara, thanks for speaking with us. Today's producer was Amanda Williams. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. This is 1A.